Welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and the parent of two young adults, one of which is on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Elia with the Spectrum Strategy Group. And in this episode, we have Peter Hahn back with us. And I'm, I'm really uh, happy that uh, Peter has taken the time again to, to sit uh, with us. But in the interest of um, the series I was doing on, you know, the different processes in special education, I felt that it was important to add another episode around what to do if something goes wrong. Or, you know, let's talk a little bit about what can go wrong uh, and what some of the steps are that we as families can take. And also, I think it's important for educators to be aware. Sometimes I think, you know, early on, if, if you're a general ed teacher, you may not always know what the steps are or what the process is. And so you're learning real time. And so hopefully we can kind of take uh, some of that away and make that process a little bit easier. And, and Peter's been on with us a couple times. So, um, you know, please definitely check out some of the other topics that we've talked about. Um, but welcome, Peter. I'm glad to have you back. Thank you, Ilya. Good morning. Happy to be back. Thank you for inviting me again. Yeah. So um, one of the things I remember, and I know as a parent, I, I kind of struggled with this as well as an educator. So from both sides, um, you know, I, I've looked at IEPs of my own child and said, well, wait, there are things missing here or there's stuff that's, you know, incorrect or they've copy and pasted from a previous IEP but didn't actually edit it. And also from the educator side, I've tried to get resources and services for a student and met with a lot of resistance for a lot of different reasons. And it, it feels super uncomfortable when you're in both sides because I feel like we're really looking to help the student. We're looking to help a child. And, and it's super frustrating when you're being met with resistance. And sometimes we don't really totally know why. So I'm, I'm, I know when there's been discrepancies with an IEP, let's say, Oftentimes, if you sit with the team and you have a conversation and you've already built really good communication and rapport as a team, things usually can go okay. Like usually we can come to some sort of agreement. But am I right in saying that a lot of what happens during this process is a bit of a negotiation? Fundamentally, under the law and in practice, the team is where the discussion should happen. And ideally, reaching an agreement as to the child's needs and what the IEP should look like and how it should be developed. So I'm glad you brought up the team. People are supposed to bring their perspectives to that team meeting, to that team process, to that discussion. And as a result, ideally, you have that IEP that works for the student. So it may end up being a compromise in one person's perspective. It may be what the child needs in another person's perspective, <laughs> but that is how the team process is defined, defined and supposed to work. So the rest of our meeting here, or our podcast here is likely going to be about what do you do when you get to a point where there is a fundamental disagreement that is not resolved. But short of that, it is the team process that it's supposed to at least attempt to resolve uh, right. any difference at the outset of the discussion. Right. And so this is why the team can sometimes feel uh, a bit 
large, right? So we can have um, we have the family there, we have the the students, teacher or teachers there. Um, usually, I would say speech therapist, OT could be there, or at least provide input. Um, we have the special ed chair and maybe special ed teacher, right? So we have a lot of people that could be sitting in this room. Is there anyone else that might be in there that um, I'm missing? That particular scenario you're talking about is likely a student who already has an IEP, and there's a discussion about that student's current needs, whether it's after a an initial eligibility finding or an annual review team meeting. But really the team is composed of a general education teacher, a special education teacher if a special education teacher is working with the student or possibly is going to work with the student or did an evaluation or assessment of the student. And then of course the parent, the parent has the right to an advocate and then a person on behalf of the school or school district who essentially can make decisions uh, for the school or school district. And then other people could be there too, like related service providers, a speech and language pathologist or occupational therapist. Yeah. And so sometimes there are other people there too, depending on the circumstances. <laughs> so yeah. really in terms of the team discussion, it can be on anything across the full spectrum of special education and special education law from initial eligibility and evaluations to termination of services uh, <laughs> when you turn uh, 22 years old and everything in between, including what related service providers are necessary, the type of school placement, accommodations, specially designed instruction that's necessary, and a host of other things uh, that that is typically included in the IEP. So really what we're talking about is the basics of who should be at the team meeting under the law, maybe some additional people who are allowed to be there under the law, and everyone bringing their perspective to the table. Now, everyone plays a certain role. So a team meeting can be pretty straightforward and everyone's in agreement from the outset, or people may have different perspectives, legitimate or otherwise. There are certain laws that have to be followed, of course, so the school has to abide by certain obligations under the law that could, from a parent or advocate's perspective, be something that they think is not fair. So a parent might go into the team meeting thinking, I want what's best for my son or daughter. Special education law doesn't guarantee that a student mm who has special needs or an identified disability gets the best possible education. It's a free, appropriate public education. So it's not about maximizing what can happen, but at the same time, there's a certain floor of what the school is legally obligated to provide to an identified special education student. So that can also create attention. Uh, so where that ceiling is and where that floor is and uh, and you hope that you meet <laughs> somewhere <laughs> in the middle of that and people move on and say, thank you for that discussion. We look forward to this IEP being implemented for my son or daughter, but sometimes you don't get that. Right. So I think you raise a lot of really good points in here. So I want to step back and talk about eligibility. Now, one of the things that I have talked about when I talked about that part of the special education process is um, I know in again, you know, we are both in Massachusetts and there is like this really cute flow chart that you can go through. Um, but one of the things that we consider is and you mentioned it here is is it's not always the case that a student that has a disability gets an IEP. Is that true? That's true. Right. So there are certain aspects of the law that need to be met. First, the student has to have an identified disability. And federal law, as well as individual state laws, define what different disabilities are for the purpose of being eligible for special education. So first, you have to have one or more identified disabilities as defined, then the student 
has to not be making educational progress. And then the lack of educational progress has to be connected to one or more of the disabilities. And then if you get through all of those, the student has to require specially designed instruction and or related services in order to make educational progress. So those are the four basic guidelines of eligibility. Okay, so that's, yeah. And so I think you're right. I think as as a parent, right, I might get caught up in um, in that process saying, well, no, my child was just diagnosed with X or, you know, they're really not progressing in school. And, and then we have to have a conversation of what that looks like. Now, um, from both the educator, so, so let's say the scenario it feels like we're talking about here is uh, either the parent has had some you know, suspicion that something is kind of off. And so they have, they seek some evaluation. Oftentimes it's the school that requests some sort of assessment be done. Um, and sometimes it's the educator. So, um, and, and, and hopefully, right, we all see, everyone's seeing something and says, yes, we all agree. But what is that act, what is that like first step? So if we're looking at it from a parent perspective and the school's kind of like saying, we don't see anything, we don't know what you're talking about. What would that be like? So a parent can bring to the school that I feel like something's not just quite right. Yeah. Yes, of course. I'm going to start with the school because the yeah. law really starts with the school Schools and school districts have what's called a child find obligation under federal law. Child find is an affirmative obligation for schools and school districts to proactively seek out and identify students who may have a disability to evaluate them to determine whether or not they're eligible for special education. I do think this is one area of the law that is not followed uh, as much as it should be. And there, from a school district's perspective, there may be resource issues with that, but resources shouldn't make a difference when it comes to the law. The law is very clear about this child find obligation. So you mentioned the situation where a teacher can ask for consent uh, from the parent to evaluate the student to determine whether or not they have a disability and they're eligible for special education. So it could be a teacher, it could be really any staff person, whether special education or general education, can basically inform the, the special education office uh, to essentially inform the parent that there's a concern that the student may be eligible for special education and then seek consent from the parent to have the evaluation done. From the parent's perspective, the parent or anyone on the parent's behalf can ask the school district for an evaluation for special education. And my advice to parents and advocates for parents is that you do that in writing that it's clear that you're asking for an evaluation for special education. And if you know to at least suggest, if not specifically ask for certain types of evaluations or assessments to be done, there have to be certain types of assessments done, such as an educational uh, assessment for a student, and then also assessments in all areas of suspected disability. So there may be an OT or occupational therapy assessment, a speech and language assessment, a psychological assessment, academic skills, cognitive skills. You have a whole array of assessments that can be done. And then there's a whole procedure from there if there's a disagreement about the results of the assessment, the right to an independent educational evaluation at public expense in certain circumstances, and then discussing the results of those assessments at that team meeting to determine eligibility. Right. And so, um, so 
now we've so th- this is this <laughs> so we have this process and let's assume the school will you know goes ahead and says yes we concur you know the teacher shows this um now from an educator standpoint is it suggested because i think this is where it gets a little tricky that an educator um talk to a family first or should they go to their special ed department first and i've heard um challenges with both (laughs) so so under the law what is what is what would be the 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 uh acceptable process to go through as far as i know the law doesn't speak to what a school staff person would have to do in terms of that process what is clear is that whoever within the school or district believes that a student is has a disability or possibly has a disability that would qualify them for special education has an obligation to send out that consent to the parent. So to inform the parent that there is this process that starts with an evaluation for which the parents have to consent for the school district to proceed with that evaluation process. So if the parents don't provide, if parents have proper notice that the school is seeking consent to evaluate and the parents don't provide it, then the school district either does not proceed with that, or if the school district, the school district could also uh, file for a due process hearing to seek an order from an impartial hearing officer uh, to override the parents' lack of consent uh, for the school district to do the evaluation. Right. Right. Okay. So that's that's one side. Now on um, the other side, as far as a parent, let's say I, I I make the request. Is the school required to go through the process if they don't feel the same way as the parent? Okay. <laughs> I thought so, but I was just making sure. Now um, let's talk about that independent evaluation. Many times families maybe have gotten uh, more information from their pediatrician or from a primary care provider who has said, you know, there's maybe some milestones not being met, or maybe, you know, we're noticing this, or a parent might bring it to their healthcare provider, but not necessarily to the school for a variety of reasons. Um, how, how would that, how does that work? A family can, of course, get an evaluation and assessments done on their own outside um, at their own expense, perhaps insurance covers some. Uh, of that. Um, How does that sort of assessment and documentation or the results from that play into this process? It depends at what point in the process that opinion or that report is generated and then given to the school district. So in Massachusetts, at least, if the student has already been identified for special education and has an IEP, if an educational evaluation is presented to the school, then the team is supposed to meet within 10 days after receiving that report to discuss the report and determine whether or not any changes are necessary to the IEP and placement. If the report comes at the outset of the process, even before the student is identified for special education, then as a parent side attorney, I'm going to be advocating for the team to meet and for the team to discuss that report and decide whether or not the student is eligible based on that report. Normally what happens in that situation is the school district takes that report as notice to them that the student has or may have a disability that would qualify them for special education and then send a consent to evaluate form to the parents for the parents to consent for the school district to conduct its own evaluation and assessments. So it really depends on the circumstances uh, but and where you're at in terms of your jurisdiction. I'm licensed in Massachusetts, so I'm speaking more specifically about the process in Massachusetts. If you're in a different jurisdiction, uh, you'll need to see what the law and regulations are around the requirement for the team to meet for 
independent educational evaluations. Right. So it is state specific then, right? There's no, there's not a federal um, sort of minimum bar for lack of another term. <laughs> for the requirement to meet yeah, when a report yeah. is produced. In Massachusetts, it is state specific. Right. And I will let you know if I find that it, there's also a federal regulation on it. So okay. I'm, I'm honed in on the 10 days for Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's conditioning. But I think, um, but it, but the other thing is, and what I'm always um, suggesting to families is that they, they need to ask. So you can call um, your you know, special ed department and speak to someone there and ask, and they should be able to give you that information. Many schools now, um, because I've been doing research across the country, do post all of those regulations on their website. So that's really nice because you can actually find a lot of that information there, which uh, I love that. Um, and sometimes, you know, good old Google, <laughs> you type in your state and, you know, special ed law, and you'll probably get way more than you want to read at one sitting. But, um, but a lot of this information is available. So I do encourage that so that you know what the process is for your particular area. Um, now, okay, so now we're into this, we, we've created an IEP now, we're eligible. Um, and now here, so we, we talked, I talked about it being a negotiation, but um, in fact, you bring up a really, a really great point that I wanted to come back to, which is a student isn't entitled to the best education, right? And again, and again, I know parents are going, what? You know, and I'm sure even there's educators going, what? I don't get that. Um, but it's, it's a free and appropriate uh, education, public education. So, right, how do we, how does that get determined? And of course, we hope that we, we, we go above that floor, like you mentioned, and we, we, we bring it up a little higher. Um, but what does that really mean? So from a parent standpoint, what, what, are, we, what are we talking about? Really, the IEP is individualized. So once you have your identified disability and the agreement that the student is not making educational progress and that there has to be specialized instruction and or related service, you also look at accommodations too, which get folded in to an IEP. So you identify those needs and you identify the goals for the student and the benchmarks and objectives related to each of those individual goals. And you think about whether or not the student needs support inside the classroom, outside the classroom, and different placement. Basically, you start with the student's needs, then what instruction accommodations and services are necessary, whether or not those can be provided in the general education setting, whether or not the student needs to be pulled out, uh, into a separate setting, and whether or not that all of that can be done in the public school setting. There's another aspect of the law that we haven't talked about yet in this podcast, which is least restrictive environment. So there's a presumption in special education law that the special education student will be in the least restrictive environment, which basically means a presumption of being in the mainstream or general education setting and only being removed or separated from that setting if it's necessary for the student to receive a free appropriate public education. Right. So when we're saying that, are we saying we want to make sure we provide the appropriate supports for a student while they're still in the general education classroom as much as we can. Yeah? We saying that? Yes. That is the presumption <laughs> of the law. And, okay. And, and the presumption of the law comes from a developmental perspective that you want special education students incorporated with general education students to the maximum extent possible. That's not always going to be able to be right. the case. Sure. And sure. that's when it triggers a, a separation. Yeah. And, and I think in some cases, depending again, because this is individualized, depending on the student, uh, it might be 
a better environment to pull out for certain things. So if that's maybe speech or some sort of hybrid, right? So some of it might be separate and some of it might be inside the classroom so that we can apply those learnings that we did outside in the classroom. So I think there's there's going to be some sort of mix and flexibility around that uh, from, from what I've seen. Right. And what it comes down to for a free, appropriate public education, I know that sounds very flexible, <laughs> uh, as I think it was meant to. But that has been clarified to an extent over the years by the United States Supreme Court, more specifically, and then other courts, too. But really, the defining standard is from the United States Supreme Court. And the most recent case on this is called Andrew F. That's the shorthand. The whole case name is Andrew F. versus Douglas County School District from 2017. And I'll give you some quotes from that. Mm -hmm. A school must offer an IEP reasonably calculated to enable a child to make progress appropriate in light of the child's circumstances. The educational program must be appropriately ambitious. Mm -hmm. And they also say, the Supreme Court also says, it must be greater than merely more than de minimis or the minimum. So that was the floor, basically, that I uh, was talking about before. So the Supreme Court has provided that clarification. Some people may say that doesn't sound that much more specific. So there has been that criticism of it, but there are important words and phrases there. So in light of the child's circumstances, this is individualized. We're not just using a cookie cutter IEP and saying that that would fit this student. Uh, no, you need to start from the basics of that individual student and move from there. The program must be appropriately ambitious. Ambitious is a pretty descriptive word there. Mm. Is there a bright line definition of what that actually means for any specific <laughs> IEP? No, but it's good to have that word. You want to be appropriately ambitious about supporting a student educationally when they have special needs. So that is a certain level that can guide you in terms of what should be in the IEP. So that's ultimately what you want to aim for. It's right. not the minimum, so it's not de minimis. It's not the absolute best or maximum that could possibly be provided, but it is something that is appropriately ambitious in light of the child's circumstances. Exactly. So uh, when we're when I mean, the next question I was going to ask you was, you know, when we talk about effective progress, I think sometimes this is where this might get called into question, because I as a parent um, or maybe it could be flipped. It could be the educator is also saying, no, this this student has way more potential. Right. And so in, in thinking about that or maybe really feeling deeply that the student has a higher potential, but that we just need to put the right support in place to get to that place. Um, I think that can also be where there might be some, you know, some disagreement in what is effective progress. And, and I think this can be from both sides. Parents sometimes might feel like educators are asking way too much. Um, and sometimes parents feel like the educators aren't asking for enough. So, so we need to meet somewhere in the middle on that. But is, I think it's, this again can, for me, feels like it can be really difficult to, to determine what is effective progress coupled with meeting a student's potential. So when you, we use the word ambitious, I think that's, does that make sense that that's where that would come in? You do have to look at the student as an individual. So you do have to look at their underlying skills, what needs to be worked on, what are the goals, benchmarks, and objectives 
that are being focused on, the data that's being collected, the information that's being collected uh, in terms of progress and whether or not the student is making progress on those identified goals as they're uh, more specifically defined by those benchmarks and objectives. So what it really comes down to is effective progress as determined by whether or not there's documented growth in the acquisition of academic knowledge and then other skills related to a student's disability in the educational setting. That's core academic skills, that's social and emotional development, that's behavioral development, that is anything that a related service provider is working on, whether it's fine motor skills, uh, whether it's regulation, whether it's dyslexia, whether it's dyscalculia, any of the different possible disabilities, uh, whether it's social skills, all those sorts of things uh, have to be also looked at in terms of the age and developmental expectations of the student, but also the individual potential of that right. student. So all of those things really go into the mix. And because there are so many students and so many varieties of these situations, <laughs> in a way, it's that flexibility has to be built in to a certain extent. So you have these guiding principles that should be guiding the discussion uh, with the team and hopefully leading you to that agreement for the IEP. Right. And and I, I, I you hit all the I was ready to ask more questions, but you hit them all. Um, but when we when we look at that, as we're coming up with our goals and our accommodations and our strategies to meet the goals within that, um, I think it might be fair to say that we might have some trial and error in there. Correct. Like we're going to try some things, but they may not always work. So when you're talking about flexibility, it's not just in you know, looking at all of these different aspects of the student, but also in the, you know, the IEP we put in place and the programming that we put in place. Does Yes? Am I right on that? Uh, I would say that the team has to make the best decisions possible with the information that the team has at that time. Mm -hmm. It may be seen as trial and error, but I don't know that it should be characterized that way. Okay. The team does have to do its best with what it knows. Right. So that may end up being something that is not actually effective, even though the team with what it knew thought that it was going to be effective. Sure. Okay. So the trial and error part of this is that if you try something out that you think is going to work, and the error is that it doesn't, then <laughs> the team should be reconvening. There should be that idea of monitoring progress or lack of progress uh, throughout the school year. And if the student's not making progress, the requirement in the law is that there has to be an annual review. So there has to be a team meeting at least once per year. That doesn't mean there can't be another team meeting uh, or more team meetings more frequently than that. So okay. my advice is that if it's clear that what is being tried is not working, then the team should be meeting to discuss what's not working, why it's not working, and if something needs to change. It sounds like if it's not working, something needs to change. So what is it that needs to change in that situation? Is it increased frequency of instruction? Is it a more specialized program? Is it an additional service? Is it a small group or one-to-one -one rather than in the general education setting? You can imagine uh, that if what was first agreed upon is not working, you do need to try something else because that is what the student needs. Okay. And, and that can be, that, that team meeting can be requested by 
both by all sides of yes those anyone yeah. anyone can request a team meeting yes excellent the specific um, federal requirement in in most circumstances is that the team has to meet once a year there is nothing that prevents the team from meeting more frequently and you should look within your own jurisdiction as to any more specific legal requirements for the team to meet more frequently, depending on what the request is for. And mm -hmm. that is beyond the scope of <laughs> this yeah. podcast. Yeah, yeah. No, but those are all really good things for people to be aware of. Um, I think oftentimes, you know, the school year can get ahead of us and we, you know, we kind of forget that, you know, we can do, we can actually talk about this more frequently. And I also think another thing that might happen is sometimes changes get made during the course of the year um, because teachers are being really good teachers and parents have really good communication with the educators that are working with their child. And so people just put things in place, you know, and sometimes it's not captured on the IEP. So we need to make sure, and, and this, I've seen this often, that the IEP will then not be an accurate reflection of what's actually been put in place during the course of the year. And so if we were looking at, I always think of it as if you were going to move tomorrow and take this document with you to a new school district that doesn't know your child, they might not know all of the things that have been happening to get to where we are now. And so now we look at this document that doesn't accurately reflect what's happening in you know real time i like your characterization of that because it really clarifies the purpose of the iep which is to reduce to writing the needs of this individual student and especially design instruction related services and accommodations that are necessary as a result and if something is being provided to the student that is essentially part of the IEP, but not reduced to writing, if you move or go to another school district, that school district does not have the personal knowledge or the direct communication with the former school or teacher or school district to have that institutional knowledge. So the essentials have to be within that IEP. And my recommendation is to put everything in writing. So even if you're not having an updated IEP or an IEP amendment that accurately reflects what is actually being provided to the student, put it in a letter, put it in an email, and then you at least have written documentation of it so that a year or two later, if you forgot about it, or even six months later, right, right. if you forgot about it or need a reminder, oh yeah, that was actually happening and that's what my daughter needs, but that's not in her IEP, you can go back and remind yourself, okay, the annual team meeting's coming up or I need to call for a team meeting to make sure that the IEP reflects what she's actually getting because if she's getting it that's and it's working, that's what she needs. Right, right, exactly. Um, and now, okay, so now we have this, we have this much information. Now, what if I feel as a parent, the school is not providing what my, my child needs? So, so, you know, we're supposed to be, they're not, in my opinion, making progress. Um, the school is being resistant to having communication with me. What, what happens next? Like, what's the, what's the, what are the steps here that we can take? The first steps should be informal steps, unless it's an urgent matter or an emergency. So let's take that category out for the purpose of the conversation mm -hmm. now. Really, my approach, even though I'm an attorney, <laughs> is that you should try and work in a collaborative way with the school to resolve any differences of opinion or differences of perceived fact or differences of actual fact, <laughs> however you want to look at it. Sometimes things can be done appropriately administratively, 
like if there's just something that was left out of the IEP by accident or something like that, you could try and resolve that or you can try and ask for another team meeting. Uh, you can get an advocate or bring a support person if that might help you out to the new team meeting. There are things that can be done informally. And if you have the luxury of time and patience to do that, I do recommend that you try to do it that way because you usually are going to have to be working with these staff people at least for the remainder of the year, if not longer. And certainly you're going to have to be dealing with the administration for an extended period of time in most circumstances. You want to preserve a collaborative relationship. You are all there, or you are all supposed to be there to support this child's education. So to the extent you can, you want to maintain that goal and civility. Of course, there are certain circumstances where that does not and or cannot happen. So once you've either tried the informal route or the informal route cannot or will not uh, be successful, then you start to think about your other formal approaches to attempting or actually resolving the situation. So especially from a legal perspective on any issue related to special education law, every jurisdiction has a uh, a process, a litigation process, by which students, parents, families, caretakers, and advocates on behalf of all of them can <laughs> file a due process complaint to start the litigation process. Schools can also file a complaint on certain issues to start the due process uh, litigation route. And in Massachusetts, that forum is an administrative law agency called the Bureau of Special Education Appeals. The name of your uh, hearing process uh, may be different, will likely be different uh, in your jurisdiction, but every jurisdiction has a legal forum where these legal disputes first go. And now those and, are usually housed within the state, right? So if you went to yes, those, your school district website, or I mean your state's educational website, you could usually yes. find that information. Yeah, okay. And a complaint is a legal complaint. There usually is a, a lesser sense of formality, at least from an attorney's perspective, in in this administrative law process than if you were to go straight into court. So uh, I will speak specifically to Massachusetts. The first stage is the Bureau of Special Education Appeals. Once the complaint is filed, you get assigned an impartial hearing officer who is like a judge. And then you are assigned a hearing date. That hearing is like a trial. And then there are legal steps along the way between filing the complaint and the hearing uh, that have to be met. And that legal process, the details of that, I'm happy to discuss, but I don't know that that is necessarily the most useful right now. But just to know, if the case goes to hearing, then you get a decision and possibly an order from the hearing officer. Uh, and whoever files the complaint has the burden of proving whatever legal claim or claims uh, were in that complaint, and that has to be proven by a preponderance of the evidence, or that the credible evidence proves more likely than not that you have or have not shown what your legal claim had set out uh, in the complaint. So that whole litigation process happens and a party who does not get a favorable decision from that hearing officer can then go into the court system and go that route to essentially appeal 
that decision of the hearing officer from the administrative law agency. So that is, as you can tell, a very formalized, <laughs> litigious process that can be inevitable in certain situations. Right. And uh, you can also imagine from the practical relational aspect of all of this that that could really undermine, if not actually destroy, any type of working relationship between the district and the families. Because once you start to litigate, it is by definition an adversarial process. So there is that risk in going that route, but it may be the only way to try and get what you want, whether you are the parent and student or you're the school district. Right. There are other options out there like mediation. Mm -hmm. So within Massachusetts, the BSEA or Bureau of Special Education Appeals has mediators. So either a school or a family can request mediation through the BSEA. It's a voluntary process. It's non-binding. Both parties have to agree to do it. And so the school and the family meet with the mediator. The mediation happens. And if the parties agree to an outcome, then there can be an agreement as a result of the mediation to resolve the dispute that was existing between the school and the family. And then that is not through the formal litigation process. Right, right. And so, so yeah, there's a lot of steps here. And I do, I do want to, you know, let families know, as you mentioned, this now can create tension. Um, normally, by the time you get to this place, there's already tension between the family and the school. Um, that is true. And, and also the process can take a long time, as do many things that are um, of this nature. And so, you know, in the meantime, we still have a student who is still kind of whatever, struggling at school or still having the challenges that may or may not be uh, getting addressed uh, while this process is happening. So, um, so that can be um, something to really think about. And, and to your point, depending on where your child is uh, in their schooling, you know, you, if you're in the same district for the entire duration of their school career, right, if you're doing this in third grade, now you're still with the same team, you know, or some of the people of the team throughout the entire high school process. So um, we need to be thoughtful about that. And and you mentioned bringing in an advocate. And I don't, you know, I, I wonder sometimes even when an advocate is brought in, that can kind of raise some of the... <laughs> some of the hairs on people's neck that you're bringing someone else in. And, and I don't think that it should always be that way because sometimes families just don't know what they don't know, right? So would that be a use of an advocate where I, I recognize maybe as a parent something's not um, sitting right, but I don't know enough, so I need to seek help from someone who does know more? And an advocate has generally has specialized training in this type of work so they can better inform me. Um, am, I, am I characterizing an advocate appropriately? For me, a special education advocate is someone who is not an attorney who has some level of training and experience in dealing with uh, special education matters on behalf of families. And part of how the dynamic at a team meeting may change as a result of the advocate being there, maybe how the advocate presents herself yeah. or himself at the meeting. Sure. So it's hard to predict whether or not bringing an advocate itself will change the dynamic in a negative way. For example, the law is clear that a parent has the right to bring an advocate or support person. So when it comes right down to it, that exercising that right should not by itself change the dynamic of right. the team meeting because the parent has a right uh, to bring that person. I will say that as an attorney, if 
I'm there either rather than an advocate or in addition to an advocate, my sense is that the dynamic definitely changes. Sure. Yeah. So I definitely can speak to that. But an advocate can be extremely helpful for a family, especially a family who is going through this the only time or for the first time if there are multiple children and are not necessarily aware of all of the obligations and responsibilities that school districts have. You, as a parent, normally go into the process thinking the school is going to be doing right by my child, and many schools do right by the children that they are educating. But that is not always the case. I'm not necessarily saying that's intentional. It could just be a misunderstanding or not understanding the law or the needs of the student. So parents should feel free because it is their right to bring an advocate uh, to a meeting to help the parents understand the process, to understand what the student should be getting, and to sometimes, depending on the circumstances, speak on behalf of the parents or assert things on behalf of the parents that the parents might not in the moment otherwise know that they should do. And that should be done in a non-confrontational way is my advice. For me, a non-attorney advocate is like an extension of the parent. Whereas if I'm there as an attorney, I am there as an attorney. (laughs) I am there as a zealous advocate for the parent and to step in and make sure that the law is being followed. It's a very different role. Of course, every situation is different, whether or not I'm involved and when I'm involved, what I would say or what I do say. Uh, But I definitely encourage parents, if they're able to hire an advocate to do so, if they don't have the money to seek out any uh, nonprofit or uh, public agency, within your jurisdiction to see if there are either pro bono advocates or uh, lower fee advocates uh, if they're available because uh, it certainly helps to be educated. There is no risk in that uh, if you you have access to an advocate uh, and it may keep a school or the school staff people at the team on its toes Uh, in a way that they might not, if the advocate uh, would not be there. Of course, that's situation dependent too. And then also having an advocate rather than attorney doesn't put put out that dynamic of, oh, we need to be really careful about what we're saying is uh, often the sense I get uh, if I'm there. Yeah, I, I, I have um, found that the the tone of conversations change, the, um, you know, the way people communicate change. Uh, and so, you know, again, we, we never want to block off communication because now we've escalated it to a point where, right, those communications, every single thing is now being scrutinized, which is where we can where we can get to, unfortunately, um, you know, and we we don't we don't really want to ever get to that place. And I think, uh, yeah, the the there are many organizations and advocates out there that will work for free or at least a phone call and spend some time with um, helping to educate. And um, yeah, I mean, I think this is uh, again. I, I know that this can sound uh, all of this information can sound overwhelming to families, um, but I think it's important to at least understand what all the different pieces are and where um, you know that there are still additional um, you know avenues to getting what what one needs. And I think the the question I think sometimes uh, I know, and I've asked myself this question and other families I'm sure do too, is when is it right to bring someone in, right? Like, so, so if I were to think that I needed an attorney at this point, if I were to consult with someone like yourself, you would be able to tell me whether what I'm thinking is, uh, is, is on par, right? Like you'd be able to tell me like, yes, I hear what you're saying, but 
in the eyes of the law, this may not be something that's viable to pursue. Is that right. accurate? Normally what I would do is a case assessment and meeting with the parent or parents. So reviewing documents, having that meeting, just collecting information and doing that case assessment and identifying what the goals are of the parents, if they know, and if not, to talk through what the options are, what possible goals might be. Say, well, this is how I see your situation from a legal perspective. And depending on what you want to do moving forward, this is how I can be involved if you want me to be involved. It may be going to a team meeting. It may not be. It may be litigating now or sometime in the future. It may be, depending on the goal, there are certain legal requirements as a parent that you have to meet to preserve your legal claims if that's the way your situation goes for your child. So it depends on a number of variables, but definitely one thing that I'm keeping in mind is how and when my involvement um, becomes formal and how that could impact what's otherwise going on if I were not formally involved in the process. Okay. All right. So I think that's really helpful to under, to know. And I also think, um, you know, working... so I, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt. So I, I do get that question also from parents and advocates and collateral professionals. When do you need an attorney? Some parents want an attorney sooner than others. Uh, some parents feel more supported with an attorney. Hmm. But what I say is that if there is a fundamental legal issue that you've tried everything informally to work out and advocate for and get for your child and it hasn't worked, you need to at least think about an attorney and get that assessment done so that you can be informed whether or not it makes sense at that point to have an attorney represent you. Of course, if the school files a due process complaint against you, you need an attorney. <laughs> right, right. Uh, that's also pretty clear. If you're talking about different types of school placements, if you're talking about significant disagreements about the content of the IEP, if you're talking about denial of eligibility when it should otherwise be clear that the student is eligible for an IEP. Really, it comes down to big picture items, but if you either wanna hire an attorney or you can get a pro bono or low cost attorney, you can get advice and litigate about any aspect of special education law uh, if that's what you want to do. Right. So short of all of that, I recommend using an advocate or having an advocate work with you because a number of these things can be worked out with an advocate through the team process or maybe even outside the team process in terms of advocacy and then bringing it into the team. I've seen that too. And advocates could also help with mediation. Yep. Advocates from a non-attorney perspective, to the extent that they can, can point out certain aspects of the law and regulations. And they, by nature, are going to be less expensive if we're talking about money uh, than an attorney. Right, yeah. And I think also there is no harm in calling an advocate. Um, and, and several, I think this is also a similar to your point about um, approach and just personality match. There is no harm in calling, even though that first picking up the phone the first time is hard. Um, there's no harm in calling different people and talking about what your situation is and getting um, seeing what rapport you have with that with that person and kind of seeing what their approach is like. So that way, um, if you go this route, you know, 
oftentimes you can, you know, maintain the uh, integrity of the relationship with the school and the educators and the district. And you just have someone there to help you kind of coach you through this process and give you the information that you need without it escalating to um, to bringing someone like yourself in. I think, uh, and, and it's okay. To, it is also okay to interview different attorneys if you're going to go that route too. It's okay to do all that. Right. You want the person who's going to work best for you. Exactly. So this has been really helpful, and I I learned so much more too. <laughs> um, and hopefully, I'll be able to help families as well with uh, when they, I get these types of questions uh, of where when to escalate and what that process could look like. And uh, hopefully, this will be uh, helpful to people to know where they are. And also, I again, I want to go back to you know keeping those lines of communication with uh, the school open and trying to build that relationship is is the first piece um, before hopefully we get to any of these other areas. But oftentimes, sometimes this happens. And so I wanted to make sure we addressed it. Yes. Thank you for having me again. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And um, we will talk to you soon, I'm sure. Yep. Thanks. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh, and if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching, and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com, and when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.